You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on the High Holy Days, presented by Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Today we begin our High Holy Days um, series, and it's something I really appreciate about this church is understanding the Jewish roots. I, I've taken sort of, I look like I've taken the Nazarite vial, you know, the growing the hair and the beard and got my yarmulke on. So, um, but it, it was interesting. Last year I decided, I, for whatever reason, I had a few reasons to do it. I, I decided to wear a yarmulke during the High Holy Days. And part of it was in this kind of attitude of, uh, of prayer, but also I, I wanted to see what it was like. What kind of reactions would I get? And one of the reactions I, I got that I'll never forget, it was from my daughter, Analia, who had just turned five at the time, and she said, Daddy, why are you wearing that silly hat? And I said to her, I said, well, baby, this is, um, it's Rosh Hashanah, and Jewish men wear yarmulkes as a sign of reverence, and they cover their heads. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, but Daddy, you're not Jewish. And the way that she said it wasn't like, but Daddy, you're not Jewish, so why bother? It was more like a fear that I was Jewish. And I thought to myself, where is this coming from? Almost sort of an anti-Semitic tone to it, as she certainly doesn't learn that from her parents, that's for sure. How did she pick up on this? And I'm racking my brain for the past year, trying to think, how is this being conveyed? And I, and I thought, you know, over the past history of Christianity, there have been many conflicts between the Jewish people and Christians. Nothing new. Even in some societies today, there is still that conflict. There is a very anti-Semitic tone that takes, that takes place. And the Jewish people are mistreated and looked down upon. And I wonder, is it because of the way that we study Scripture? Because whenever, the, whenever there is judgment on the Jewish people, it's because of the majority of the Jewish people doing things that are wrong. That's the book of Judges. Ten of the twelve spies were bad. It meant 40 years of wandering in the desert. It was Jesus, whenever he had conflict, it wasn't with the Romans, it was always with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth. And so it's easy for us to take sides with the good guys, with the Joshuas and the Calebs, and with the Moseses, and with Jesus and the disciples, and then to look at the Jewish uh, leadership. And, and uh, you know, when you read the book of Kings, it's incredibly depressing because so many of the kings are wicked and do wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm with them and their conflict is against the Jewish people. And so we sort of build that up in our mind. And we have to remember that, yeah, there were some bad people, uh, Jewish people that did awful things, but Joshua and Moses were Jewish. Caleb was Jewish. Aaron was Jewish. Elisha and Elijah were Jewish. Daniel was Jewish. Esther was Jewish. Mordecai was Jewish. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were Jewish. And all of the prophets, the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs, and all the minor prophets like Hosea and Joel, all of those guys were Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. All of the disciples were Jewish. The writers of the Bible were Jewish. And they were Jewish, Jewish as God expected Jewish people to be. They were the good guys. So it's easy to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater, but we really believe here that there is a context to Christianity. 
and the context of Christianity is Judaism. And so we like to, to look at these, these holy days, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And the way I look at them isn't that it's a Christian mandate, that it's a mandate that believers have to celebrate these festivals. Now, I don't believe that at all. What I believe is that in our friendships with each other, we get to know each other and we get to learn about each other's past. And as we learn about each other's past, it helps us to understand who this person is and helps us to relate with them in the present. Jesus was communi- or the Lord, uh, the Trinity, was communicating with the, the earth long before Jesus' birth. And so in a sense, by looking back at history and understanding God's revelation to the Jewish people and to the world, through, the, through these festivals and through other means, we can understand a little bit more about who God is and appreciate him that way. So with that in mind, let me take you through just a brief introduction to the festivals. There are seven festivals in the Jewish calendar, and this is the Jewish calendar. It does not line up with our calendar because it's based on the lunar. Uh, it's a lunar calendar. We are a solar calendar. The first month in the Jewish calendar is at 3 o'clock. It's Nisan, the month of Nisan. And the first feast in the month of Nisan is the Feast of Passover. Shortly after Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's right next to each other. And then the Sunday, the first day of the week following the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is the Feast of First Fruits. Fast forward it to 50 days because you have the Feast of Weeks. 50 days later is Pentecost, Pente meaning 50, also known as the Festival of Shavuot. Then, in the month of Tishri, on the first day of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah. That begins tonight. So at sundown, because they, the, the, the day begins at sundown, rather than at midnight or at sunup or anything. It's sundown. So sundown tonight begins Rosh Hashanah. It's the first day of the month of Tishri. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. Well, you might say, well, Justin, you just told me that Nisan is the first month in the calendar. How is Tishri the first, the new year? The answer to that is, it's complicated. <laughs> but it, we have similar systems. We have a calendar year. Uh, in my work, we have a fiscal year that begins on July 1st and ends on June 30th. The school year begins in September. So there are a number of different calendar systems that we use um, uh, alongside of each other. It's the same thing with the Jewish people. Next week, we're going to celebrate Yom Kippur. That's 10 days following the celebration of Rosh Hashanah. It's the it's the Day of Atonement. And then following that, five days later, is the festival of Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, however you might refer to them. But today I want to talk about why is it that God gave us the feast, or gave the Jewish people the feast? Why is this? And you might have the question, well, what about Hanukkah, and what about Purim, and all of those? Well, those are festivals that were, were added later on in Jewish in history. But in the book of Leviticus... In the Pentateuch, these are the seven feasts, along with the weekly Sabbath, that are prescribed for the Jewish people. Why did God give them the feasts? I can think of five reasons, and maybe there's more, but I want to go through these five reasons today. You know, one of the things that God was doing with the people of Israel is he was creating a new culture for them. They had lived in Egypt for a very, very long time. They, they didn't have their own identity. And one way God wanted to give them an identity, build a culture for them, was to give them uh, things to celebrate. Just like in our culture, we celebrate certain things. We have our regular holidays like July 4th and Memorial Day and things like that that we celebrate. But we also have some other things that we do like Purple Fridays or Purple Sundays. And um, these are things that sort of build on our own culture. Well, the Jewish people, it's the same thing. 
And particularly, there are three feasts that are pilgrimage feasts. God expected that the Jewish people would get together on these feast days. And that's Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot. Those three days were considered, um, are considered pilgrimage days. Along with that, the, the second reason I can think of why God would create these festivals for Israel to celebrate is because they're connected to a past event. And you read some of the passages in scriptures. God wanted the people to remember, remember what happened for them. So, for example, they built the um, stones after they crossed the Jordan so that any time, what do these stones represent? Well, they represent God's deliverance and bringing us into the new land. Or even for us as believers, God left us with a, a memorial service to remember his death until he comes. That's how we celebrate communion. So remembering the past is very important to the Lord so that we don't forget its importance. And you can see here some of the ways in which the the festivals remember. For example, Passover, of course, represents, remembers the shedding of the lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the houses and then that led to to Israel's deliverance when they left Egypt. Pentecost, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to to Moses, and Sukkot, the dwelling in tents in the wilderness. Well, what does Rosh Hashanah celebrate? Well, Rosh Hashanah is often also referred to as the Feast of Trumpets, the Festival of Trumpets. And the reason why it's called the Festival of Trumpets is because the trumpet is played on Rosh Hashanah, and for a very specific reason. But we're not talking about brass trumpets. If you were to go to a synagogue and bring your brass trumpet, you would be shunned. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the shofar. The shofar is the ram's horn. Why the ram's horn? Well, the story takes us back to Genesis chapter 22. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. In Genesis chapter 22, we read why it's the shofar. This is the story of Abraham bringing Isaac up to the mountain in order to offer him to the Lord. In verse 1 we read, Sometime later God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning Abraham got up, and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. 
Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So we sang this morning, Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. There Isaac is sacrificed, or he's brought as a sacrifice to the Lord. And it must have been just a tremendously strange, awkward experience, frightening for both of them. But the point that I want to look at today is what is said, what is said in verse 8. In Genesis 22.8, Isaac asks Abraham, Well, Dad, we got everything. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. The way that the Hebrew is written, it's a little bit vague because you can interpret it different ways depending on how you read it because of the word, uh, the word arrangement and so forth. But you can also interpret it this way. God will provide himself as a lamb. It's a very uh, tremendous statement there, no matter how you read it, because God does provide the lamb. He provides the ram. The ram's horn is caught in a thicket. And so the ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac. And it wouldn't be too long later before Jesus would be provided as the Lamb of God. So that is the historical, um, that, those are some of the historical things that go along with Rosh Hashanah and the celebration of these feasts. But all of these feasts as well, and, and this makes a great transition to talk about the third reason. The third reason is that they all point to the Messiah. The, the feast days are fulfilled in the Messiah. And I don't say that as a believer in Jesus, Yeshua. I say that because Jewish people say that too. The Jewish scholars will tell you that when the Messiah comes, he will fulfill all of these feasts. The only difference is, is that we believe as believers that the fulfillment is found in Jesus as our Messiah. And he has come and fulfilled them already and will still continue to fulfill them later on. We can see it easily in the spring feasts, probably more so than the fall feast, so there's some definite um, tie over there. But in the spring feast, and the timing of them is just perfect. Because on, on Passover, Jesus was offered as the Lamb of God, right? So the perfect Lamb of God, his blood was shed so that, our, so that the angel of death would pass over, so that we would not experience the wrath of God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, bread represents our leaven represents sin, yeast represents sin, and Israel was instructed that in their haste they were to make uh, bread without leaven and carry it on their backs. The leaven, as we, as we look at matzah, it's, stri- it's stripped, it's poked, it's, it's flat, it's, it's hard. And Jesus himself carries the cross. He is the perfect lamb of God. He is the perfect bread of life. He is without sin. He was stripped, he was broken, he was pierced for our transgressions. And then the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. Paul says that Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. Well, what's he referring to? Well, he's referring to the fact that Jesus rose on the first day of the week following the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When is the Feast of First Fruits? On the first day of the week following the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus, his resurrection goes right alongside the Feast of First Fruits. And then Pentecost. When we hear the word Pentecost, we don't think of 
Moses on the mountain. We think of the Pentecostal churches and the speaking in tongues and the slain in spirit. Well, that's because in Acts chapter 2, we read of the disciples speaking in tongues, receiving the Holy Spirit. Because Jeremiah 31 writes, Jeremiah writes, Jeremiah writes, (laughs) it's a different kind of shofar. (laughs) Jeremiah writes this. He writes that there will come a day when the Lord will write his law on our hearts and on our minds. And so instead of writing the law on the tablets of stone, he's writing them on our hearts and on our minds as we receive the Holy Spirit. Well, what about the fall feasts? I showed this video last year, and I want to show it again this year. It's just a very brief video. It's taken from the movie, the documentary called The Star of Bethlehem, just to set it up for you. The, the documentary, it's done by an amateur astronomer, a believer who decided he was going to investigate. He was a lawyer. He is a lawyer, and he wanted to investigate what was the Star of Bethlehem. What is that star? And so he began to do all of this research, and what he found was really awesome. But I want to, I want to show you what he found out uh, during the crucifixion. So let's watch this video. They really affect me, I have to admit. I mean, I, I get the purple on the back of the neck. You know, sometimes these things put me in tears. Maybe they do you too. I don't know. I want to show something now that's going to make you just marvel at God. I want you to p- picture in your mind the geometry of a lunar eclipse. It's not really very hard. You just have the sun and the earth and the moon, and they line up. The earth gets between the sun and the moon and blocks the light. Okay, so they're lined up. When you look at a lunar eclipse from Earth, the moon gets dark. But if you were to go to the moon and look back, what would you see? You'd see the earth coming between you and the sun, wouldn't you? You'd see a solar eclipse, wouldn't you? Okay, because that's the reverse. So I'm going to do something now that I think you'll find interesting. We're now on the moon. You're standing on the moon, you're looking back towards the sun, and that's the earth. I want to show you now the moment of Christ's passing on the cross. That's 3 p.m. That's Aries, the paschal lamb, the ram, the constellation Aries, at the very instant of Christ's death. I'll show you again. He is expiring right now. And the heart of the ram is put out. Jesus, your paschal lamb. This evening. It's such a a fantastic documentary. If you get the chance to watch it, I think it's on YouTube as well. Um, It's just well worth watching. But the idea of um, the ram, Aries, the constellation, and you you may look at this and you may say, well, that's just total coincidence. I tend to say things are coincidences when I can't explain them, when I can't recreate them, or something like that. It's easy to say, that's a coincidence. But the more that I study the things of God, the more I think, there is a greater risk of, and you might say, well, you're just reading into something. Well, there's a greater risk of me not discovering something than reading into something. God just plans things out so perfectly. And the way he does things is just... The minute details just blows our mind away. We cannot fathom it. So the fact that there was an eclipse the moment Jesus died on the cross, and that if we were standing on the moon looking at the sun, we would see the earth within the constellation Aries is unbelievable. 
It's awesome. It's really neat. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the Ram. The Ram. And that's and he points. This is one these one of the things that he is the fulfillment of Rosh Hashanah. Next week we're gonna look at Yom Kippur. And I'm gonna give a message I gave maybe a year and a half, two years ago, called the Mercy Seat, um, talking about um, the correlation between the Ark of the Covenant and Jesus's where Jesus' resurrection, everything. A lot of you have given gave me wonderful feedback about it. So uh, if there's anyone uh, that you think would be interested in it, please feel free to invite friends and um, just be in prayer for this week as I prepare and um, that the Lord, because it's not, it's just me telling all these wonderful things that the Lord has done. It's not me creating these things. They're just, God had did it, he has done it all himself. So the first reason why God gave the feast is to create a culture. The second reason is to tell us about history and help us remember history. The third reason is the fulfillment that we would find in Jesus, our Messiah. The fourth reason, I think, is that they point to end times. We see this especially with the fall feast, especially with the festival of Sukkot. But whenever I hear the word trumpet, a lot of things start coming in mind. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And when he says trumpet, again, it's not a brass instrument. It is the shofar. There's something integral here that we need to understand. That Paul, when he sees this, he sees the shofar being blown. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I really appreciate Steve doing a series on... on, um, on the end times, on prophecy in particular, because there's a lot of junk that gets thrown out there. A lot of stuff about December 21st or May 21st or whatever. And I just think it's just so ludicrous. Because my opinion is, is that the Lord will come on one of the feast days. Why not? Why not? He's given these seven markers that he uses over and over and over and over again in history. And might it be that the Lord will use the trumpet call during Rosh Hashanah. Baruch HaBav Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as a time to come. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know which year it is. If that's what you're wondering. I don't know. But I remember something Gary always said. He said, if you want to know the end times, don't look at the U.S. Don't look at the U.S. economy. Don't look at the presidential election. I know every year everyone gets in a, a, a real... You know, their feathers get ruffled and we're like, oh, someone's becoming president. It's the end of the year. It's the end of the age. Look at the Jewish people. Look at the Jewish people. Look what's happening in Israel and use that as kind of understanding, well, is this the time that the Lord is coming? But I think Steve gave us some really good insights, some really good lessons about not getting caught up in it, worshiping the Lord, staying focused on following him. The last thing, the last reason why I think that the Lord, the Lord gave these feasts is because I think that he wanted to under, us to understand something about his person, his personality, his character. Who is he? And how do we worship him? And these feasts give us insight on that. But one of the questions I asked this year that was a little bit different was, why did you arrange the feast the way that you did? Because if I'm creating a culture, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put um, feasts maybe every month, 
I really like holidays and days off of work. Every month, maybe every couple of months. I'm not, months, I'm not going to group them together like this. Uh, you know, that doesn't seem logical. I'm going to spread them out a little bit more. So I prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. I don't know if this is a revelation or not, but um, as I was thinking about it, you know, the, the high holy days is what they call the fall feasts. And they're grouped together. They're often referred to as the days of awe. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. There's three of them. Rosh Hashanah not only looks at the, the, the time where Abraham offered Isaac on the, on, uh, on the mountain as a sacrifice, but it also is, points to God as creator, specifically the creation of man. And we attribute the creation of man often to the person of God the Father. When we think of Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement, we think of the person of God the Son, fulfilling Yom Kippur, being our atoning sacrifice. And when we think of the dwelling of God, we think of God the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Might it be that what God was telling, what God was showing us through grouping these feasts together in this way is something about his triune person. The triunity of God. The trinity of God. The Trinity of God. Now that is a tough thing to grapple with, isn't it? That is a tough concept. Jewish people, uh, this is a big hang-up for them because the Shema is central to understanding uh, who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when we start talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they say, well, you're polytheists. We say, no, we're not polytheists, we're monotheists. We believe in one God. We, we proclaim the Shema. But we believe in three distinct persons, that he displays, shows himself in three distinct persons. Well, that's polytheism. No, it's not polytheism. It's monotheism, you know. The, the argument goes on. And if only we had something in nature to help us understand, because, you know, we look at math problems, and as far as I know, one plus one plus one doesn't equal one. But maybe one times one times one equals one. If only there was one way in which we could demonstrate this kind of scientifically, you know, taking something and then showing its nature as being complex more than just singular, maybe like a prism and shining a light through a prism, a beam of light, particles of light, and seeing the different strands that are made up. Maybe. The Trinity is not a word that's ever used in Scripture. It's something that we have put a label on through study and reflection and prayer and things like that. But nonetheless, it's still everywhere in Scripture. And I'm not just talking about the New Testament. The Old Testament as well. The Old Testament is full of references to the complexity and the persons of God. How about David saying, uh, talking about the Son? Or Daniel talking about the Anointed One sitting on the right hand of God the Father? How about the, the, all the references to the Spirit of the Lord? It's there everywhere. You know, we don't have to look very far to see the first reference of the Trinity, the complexity of God. It's in the first chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So the first question I have is, why does God refer to himself in the, third person, or the first person plural? Why does he do that? Our, us, things like that. Why does he do that? Is he talking about the angels? And if so, then the angels have to have the same countenance, the same image, 
the same likeness as God, and I don't really think they do. Here's another clue. The word God is Elohim. The word Elohim is the plural form of God. It's not Eloha, it's Elohim. So in the Shema, it's not, it's not Hero Israel, the Lord our Eloha. It's the Lord our Elohim is one. God all along was teaching them that his nature, his person, was so much more complex. Yes, he is one God, but in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the part of Rosh Hashanah that we celebrate, the the historical event, is the fact of God's creation, God creating man. And there, there are two things that really stand out in this passage. We are created in the image and in the likeness of God. In the image and of the likeness of God. No other animal, no other part of creation has this distinction that we are created in the image and in the likeness of God. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Michelangelo, when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, you know that famous painting I just showed you, the two fingers, God reaching out and Adam reaching out in the creation, that it's such a famous painting. And those of you who have studied art probably will know what I'm going to show next. Notice where God is when he creates. A lot of people think, oh, he's sitting in the clouds with the angels and so forth. But take a closer look. Michelangelo saw and painted a brain. Michelangelo painted a brain. God is sitting in the brain. The idea that we are given the brain, this consciousness, this, this, the ability to imagine, the ability to sense, the ability to love, the ability to draw closer to the Lord. This all, a lot of this happens in our brains and God gave this to us. This is part of the likeness and the image of God that he bestowed to man. It's huge. This is, this is huge. We are created in the image of God. And I understand that we fell during you know, the fall and we were sinful and we're depraved and I understand all of that. I, I subscribe to the tulip, the five points of Calvinism, the total depravity and the unconditional election and the limited atonement and the irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. I believe in all of that. But I think, I think John Calvin missed something. I think he missed the beginning. I think he missed the image of God. So, with uh, John Calvin's permission, the eye to look. <laughs> if I could, the image of God, we are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. Yeah, we've fallen, yeah, we sin, but we are created in the image of God. Ecclesiastes 3 says, The Lord writes on our heart eternity. He has written, He has put eternity in our hearts. I've got to think that there is something programmed within us. I know there is. Something programmed within us that when we draw to God, we're drawing to something that's deep within us, that's been put there that we remember something about Eden, something about heaven, something about eternity, something about the Lord, and that is His image. His image is within us. Remember those old night lights that you had? You take the night light, you have to hold it up to the lamp. You hold it up there for 30 seconds, you bring it back, it glows. It's sort of like our relationship with God. We, we come to the Lord, 
and the image that's within us that he put there at creation starts glowing when it's near the image of God, when it's near God himself. I love that illustration. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. I just want to I invite you just to close your eyes. You know, it's amazing to me. Um, the more I spend time with the Lord, you ever have those days where you, you just can't seem to get the person inside of you to come out? It's like, I, I'm not coming out the right way. I'm not, I'm not saying the right stuff. The, the me, the real me is not being portrayed in the right way. And, I, and I'm finding that when I spend time with the Lord, it's like I'm finding the real me. The person that I'm supposed to be. I feel I'm like more like myself. And I think that's, that's because the image of God was programmed inside of me. So that when I spend time with the Lord, I'm finding the image of God. The way I was supposed to be. Not, not in just how I act, not the external activities, but spending time, the prayer life that's so essential to us, that, that we need, that we desperately long for. That's, that's where we find it. That's where we find that image of God. So why don't we just close our eyes for a minute. Lord, you are so glorious and so awesome. And to think that we are created in your image, in your likeness, man, it's just amazing. It's amazing. I've been talking about using our mind in prayer, and I'd like to just do something about that, with that this morning. And I want you to, I want to have you picture or sense or imagine that you are in the Garden of Eden. Let your mind see those images, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, and the lush grass, and the beautiful fruits and plants, and the crystal blue air, and the cool breeze. See the animals, the wild animals, the deer, the elephants, and the giraffes, the zebras. See the lion laying next to the lamb. You're standing in the garden, and I want you to look, and I want you to see your heavenly Father, the Trinity, the triune God, and all of its complexity create you and give to you his image. How do you sense that? Do you see that? What does that look like? When I see this, it's like a giant weight lifted off my shoulders. All of the pressures of life that I, I get so bogged down on, all of the things that I get so worried about and anxious about. And I see this moment where God 
creates man and gives him his image, and there I am with God. And it's like all of those things disappear. I think that's where we find shalom. That's where we find peace. And I want you to hear the Father say to you, I have created you in my image. Hear him, sense him, see him. I have created you in my image. I have created you in my image. It makes me never want to leave this place of sitting next to the Father. I have created you in my image. I want to know what that image is. What is it like? What are you calling me to do, God? What do you have for me? What have you empowered me with? And this is what I would like you to do. I'd like you to just hold up your hands. And I want you to sense yourself looking at God. See yourself looking at God. See God standing before you. Sense that. Picture that, imagine that. And I want you to say, thank you, God, for creating me in your image. Thank you, God, for creating me in your image. Thank you, God, for creating me in your image. Thank you, God, for creating me in your image. Now as you open your eyes, open your eyes realizing, don't lose that, that you have been created in the image of God. The way we see what we see, how we see them, we were designed, we were created so that we would see them as someone created in the image of God. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and look at them and say, you are created in the image of God. 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 For me, it changes my whole outlook. It changes the way I think about myself. It changes the way I think about each, each other. And I think the reason why is because I'm starting to learn that image of God that's been programmed within me, that, and that's what I'm discovering. That's what we're discovering together when we spend time with the Lord. Like that light, we begin to glow as God designed us to glow. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. 
To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.